Welcome to the Happy Menopause Podcast with me, Jackie Lynch, registered nutritional therapist and founder of the Well, Well, Well Nutrition Clinic, where I specialize in women's health and the menopause. There are so many ways that diet and lifestyle can help to relieve a whole range of menopause symptoms. And my new book, The Happy Menopause, Smart Nutrition to Help You Flourish, is packed with practical nutrition advice to support you through the transition. Join me and my expert guests on a journey through midlife in this podcast and find out how you can have a healthy and happy menopause. It's World Menopause Day, and this year's theme is premature ovarian insufficiency, otherwise known as premature menopause. It's a condition which affects one in a hundred women under 40, one in a thousand under 30, and one in 10,000 under 20. And this is where the ovaries are unable to produce estrogen and progesterone, and the menopause happens many years before it naturally should. It can be incredibly stressful for the women concerned and requires specialist hormone treatment to negate the health risks of an estrogen deficiency at such a young age. So today I've reached out to Dr. Rebecca Gibbs, who's the perfect person to discuss this because of her professional specialism in gynaecology and her own personal experience of premature menopause. But first, I'd like to give a shout out to my sponsor, Silk, who make it possible for me to produce this podcast. Their wonderful product can transform your intimate life, because one of the midlife symptoms we don't often talk about is vaginal dryness. It can be a real problem during the perimenopause and the menopause, causing itching, discomfort and painful sex. So I'd like to say a big thank you to them, not just for supporting this podcast, but for offering a gentle and natural solution for women with vaginal dryness. Silk's plant-based formula is made in New Zealand with kiwi vine gum extract, which is a natural lubricant. It's water-based and pH-friendly, so that it gently soothes vaginal dryness and irritation helping you rediscover your love life. It's available at all chemists and off the shelf in larger boot stores. Visit silk, S-Y-L-K to order your free sample. And so on to today's episode. I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Rebecca Gibbs, who is a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist working at the Royal Free Hospital in London and at the Portland Hospital. Rebecca was diagnosed with premature ovarian insufficiency in her early 30s whilst undergoing fertility treatment. She's used her experience as both a doctor and a patient to volunteer for the DAISY Network, the UK's premature ovarian insufficiency charity, and she's full of great practical advice on how to cope with this difficult condition and to live a positively child-free life. So let's hear what she's got to say. Welcome to the Happy Menopause, Rebecca. Thank you very much. It's so exciting to be talking to you. Oh, well, I'm thrilled to, uh, f- for you to join us today. And what I'd like to do, first of all, is for you to tell us your story. You know, what's your background and how did it lead to where you are now? Sure. So I'm Rebecca Gibbs. I'm a 37-year-old obstetrician and gynaecologist um, living and working in London. I work at the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead in my NHS practice. And I suppose I've come to have an interest in menopause partially through seeing women clinically, but also because I was diagnosed with premature menopause myself in my early 30s. Right. So that's a big deal. And we're going to go on to talk about that in a minute. 
But 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 what inspired you to study medicine in the first place, and, huh. and what led you to specialise in in gynaecology? So it's an interesting one, and actually, you know, I have spent a bit of time thinking about this today because I think. The standard answer when people ask, why did you want to be a doctor is because, you know, you wanted to help people and make a difference. And of course, that's part of it. But really, when I was at school, I felt that being a doctor was just one of the things on the list. I mean, had I had a truly free choice, I may well have chosen to study physics or design and technology at university. Wow. Every, I know. <laughs> the, the, the options changed every day, as long as it wasn't languages or sport. I'm terrible at both of those. But I think it, it, it's a cliche because it's true. But people talk about wanting their children to become doctors. And that's true anywhere. But it's particularly true in people of an immigrant background. My mother's from St. Lucia in the Caribbean. She and her family are very excited that I'm a doctor. And it's true <laughs> in medical families too. So my English grandfather was a very distinguished physician. Um, he was a gastroenterologist at the unit, well, at the hospital where I ended up studying medicine. And I think in my teenage years, I realised that medicine was probably a pretty good fit, and I sort of fell into it, which is a very stark contrast to my younger sister. She's just 20 months younger than me, and she decided that she wanted to do medicine, gosh, as, well, a very small child. She's a GP, she's brilliant, and she'd always wanted to do it, but I sort of fell into it. Right. And what took you to the gynaecology side of it? Women are just fascinating. I I did struggle a little bit during medical school. You go, and it's a very, very common transition, but you go from being one of the brightest kids in your class at school to being surrounded by all these people who seem very ambitious and very driven. And I did wonder a few times whether it was for me or not. But then I did my obstetrics and gynaecology placement and loved the fact that you get to spend the day talking to women about things that I suppose in polite society you're not really meant to talk about. I mean, periods, sex, all that sort of stuff. And you get to do operating, which I really enjoy. It's problem solving. It's fixing things. And so... It just fitted really nicely. So I finished medical school in 2006 and decided to go into obs and gynae specialist training and finished my training in 2017. And I would say that, you know, 99% of those days have been really happy, really interesting days. And I've really enjoyed it. Oh, that's so interesting. And and what a fascinating journey. So... It's World Menopause Day today, and as you know, this year's theme is premature menopause, and you've mentioned that this is something that's affected you. So could you maybe start out by explaining, you know, what it is and and how it can affect women? Sure, absolutely. So I suppose actually we should probably start with the terminology. When I was at medical school, so actually not that long ago, and this is something that's changed a huge amount recently – we were called premature menopause, premature ovarian failure, which I think is an awful, awful term. You know, no oh, woman, it's harsh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No woman is a failure because their ovaries don't work. It doesn't make you any less a woman. And the 
gynecology world has worked quite hard to try and rebrand it as premature ovarian insufficiency. Now, insufficiency isn't a great word either, but it, it describes what's happening. It explains that the ovaries just aren't functioning as well as one would hope for your age. Yeah. Um, we do use premature menopause as well. And as a 37-year-old, I'm very happy telling my peers that I have gone through the menopause early and that I have premature menopause. But bearing in mind that some of the women I have met with this condition are 16 or 17 years old, I think yes. still being at school and telling your friends I'm going through the menopause is really quite horrifying. So yeah. I think trying, well, you will find that I use the terms interchangeably during this recording, premature menopause, premature ovarian insufficiency. And I really hope that I don't use premature ovarian failure. But unfortunately, if you look at a lot of medical publications from not that long ago, that's the term we use. Right. So it's pretty rare but it, it how common it is depends on how old you are so the statistics are easy to remember one woman in 10,000 goes through the menopause before the age of 20 one woman in a thousand goes through the menopause before the age of 30 and then one woman in a hundred goes through the menopause before the age of 40 right. so it becomes sort of more common as you get towards the traditional menopause age there's then this other sort of category called early menopause, so women between 40 and 45, which obviously I've been talking about women going through the menopause as teenagers in the same breath, but it's no, it's it's distressing and shouldn't be minimised at all to be going through the menopause at 41, 42, when actually a lot of your peers will be popping out babies. It's mm. It's still a big thing. Yes, I can see that. So do we know why it happens? So unfortunately, a lot of the time we don't. Nine times out of 10, there's there's no obvious cause. And you often find out that women in these cases actually do have mothers or aunts who've gone through the menopause slightly earlier than their, their peers. But in most cases, and in mine, there is no obvious reason. The other right. women, the sort of one in 10 they go through the menopause through reasons like having their ovaries removed surgically, so for cancer or for endometriosis. There's a group of childhood cancer survivors who've had chemotherapy or radiotherapy in their teenage years who then become menopausal. Right, and there course, are some yes. very rare genetic and autoimmune causes, but the vast majority of women, we never find out why. Mm. So... It's a really broad spectrum of women that this can affect, actually. Yes. So when looking at the, the teenage girls, um, first of all, what might lead someone to or other doctors to suspect that a patient, a young girl patient, has got premature ovarian insufficiency? So that's actually a really good question, because as doctors, we quite often get that really, really wrong. Um, if a young person so starts their periods at what 13 14 has periods for a little bit of time and then they go away the first thing you're actually going to think about is something really common so polycystic ovarian syndrome for example or mm. it might be that they're very slim and doctors think that they are too skinny to have periods and so often the women I've met through the dating network who are very young are told to you know go away and exercise less and perhaps your periods will come back 
eventually they end up with some blood tests to check their hormones and that tends to be the thing that gives the diagnosis some Mm -hmm. of these young women do have menopause symptoms but they're quite often dismissed or ignored which obviously is a problem throughout the menopause spectrum we all know that women talk about symptoms and people shrug their shoulders and say well you know but a lot of our younger patients are misdiagnosed in the first instance Mm, yes, I see. And and then as women work through their their twenties and and thirties, I suppose it's it's the same approach. They they may go to the doctor with concerns, and then it will be once the blood test happens that the real diagnosis is is able to be made. Yes, absolutely. So it's and it's a it's a theme with a lot of women's health issues that women feel that they're not necessarily taken seriously by healthcare professionals, and they do have to push quite hard quite often for a diagnosis sometimes it's it's very obvious and there are some excellent GPs out there who you know will think about this as one of the the first line causes for period stopping but quite often and actually quite logically and sensibly people well doctors will think well you know polycystic ovarian syndrome or a thyroid disorder both much, much more common. And so women quite often have a lot of those investigations done first. Mm, I see. So how did you first find out it was an issue for you? Goodness, well, I had quite a, let's say, a, a soft introduction to my diagnosis. My husband and I decided that we would, you know, try and get pregnant. And so, gosh, I was 29. I expected it to happen right away. I mean, you know, let's face it, you spend all of your teens and 20s trying your hardest not to get pregnant. Yes, exactly. I assumed as soon as I removed my Mirena coil, it would happen. And it didn't. And we tried and nothing happened. And so I started having some investigations. And the first lot of blood tests I had done, you know, they weren't great but they weren't awful and they certainly didn't look like I was going through a premature menopause we ended up going to have IVF and I'm incredibly lucky we live in a part of the UK where you get three rounds of IVF on the NHS many women aren't so lucky and every time we went to go and have treatment we well the doctors trying to get my ovaries to produce lots of eggs for IVF as they do would find that they were getting a fraction of the amount that you would expect for someone of my age and Mm. every time we had another round so we had three rounds all together the eggs they'd get were of a poorer quality and fewer in number and the blood tests I'd have between the rounds showed my FSH the hormone test we used to diagnose premature menopause was rising and rising and rising. So it was a slow, gradual, creeping realisation. I yes. yeah, I mean, I could talk for hours to you about the challenges of being a doctor and a patient at the same time. And one of the most difficult things was, was that I was having fertility treatment in a unit where I had previously worked. So everyone sort of knew me oh. as a colleague as well as a patient, yes. which meant that... And I know how it feels. I've been on the other side of this, but nobody really wanted to break the bad news to me that this wasn't going to happen. So everyone was, you know, so supportive and encouraging. And I'm sure it will work. I'm sure it will when we all knew it wouldn't. 
And I'd have these blood tests done and we'd look at the computer screen together at the results and the person talking to me would sort of make a bit of a face rather than even saying what the result was. And I'd look at the screen too and also make a face. And my poor non-medic husband would just be like, what's going on? And I'd shrug my shoulders and say, ugh, my ovaries aren't working very well. And so eventually we decided that the only way forward if we were going to have fertility treatment was donor egg IVF, which we decided against. And I started on HRT with proper, proper menopausal symptoms, I think shortly before my 32nd birthday, so five years ago. Mm. So, I mean, that takes me very neatly to, to the next thing I wanted to ask, actually, which is, you know, what support and treatment can women in, in that situation expect from their doctor? So, it's actually all laid out very nicely in what's called a nice guideline that anyone can access on the internet and in fact I could give you the details of to include in the show notes if you would like Mm. oh yes please yeah um it's something I often often refer patients to because care can be quite patchy telling someone that their ovaries aren't working as a teenager or a 20 or 30 something you know it's a big, big diagnosis. And ideally, you've had your workup done by a GP that you, you know, you know, and trust your family doctor who will sit you down and explain this big, big diagnosis to you and talk to you about what comes next. Um, Unfortunately, that doesn't happen a lot of the time. What you need to know, the most important thing is that you absolutely must take hormone replacement therapy. Now, that's that's a big challenge. There is obviously a lot of negative press around hormone replacement therapy. I, as a gynecologist, think it's wonderful, life-transforming stuff, but obviously there are risks associated with taking it for women of, I, I hate to use the word normal, but women of average menopausal age. Actually, the reality is, is that if you've got premature ovarian insufficiency, there are no cancer-associated risks of taking hormone replacement therapy. In fact, if you don't take it, you are at risk of osteoporosis, so brittle bones, you're at risk of heart disease, and you are at higher risk of developing Alzheimer's syndrome early. That's very interesting and and I think really useful and, and important for people to know because these are, of course, risks that happen to women after the, the standard yeah. age of, of menopause in any case. But what you're saying is that presumably these risks could happen much earlier. So with a young girl, for example, perhaps who was diagnosed at the age of you know, 15, um, that could find herself with issues around osteoporosis or heart condition in her 20s exactly. if she wasn't taking the HRT. Yes. And I have met, you know, wonderful, brilliant young women who have been diagnosed very, very early and have been far too afraid to take hormones. I say HRT, actually there are trials going on to assess whether the combined contraceptive pill, so it contains estrogen and progesterone, is just as appropriate for younger women with premature ovarian insufficiency and might be more acceptable. But if you don't take those hormones, your bones really do crumble quite quickly. And all you're doing is topping your hormone levels back up to those that you would expect of someone in your 20s or 30s. It's not that you're taking extra additional hormones. And it's so, so important to get that started as soon as possible. 
So what you're essentially doing is getting back to the baseline yeah. that, that you would expect of your particular age. Exactly that. So that's, you know, the thing that needs to happen. So in an ideal world, you'd be given the diagnosis, you'd be seen by someone who is really positive about starting hormone replacement therapy. We do sometimes do some investigations. So there are some incredibly rare, unusual genetic syndromes, which if your premature ovarian insufficiency is diagnosed sort of in a fancy hospital setting, you might have done, but it's quite reasonable not to do them because these things are so rare. And mm. women who have a very early menopause also need to have their bone density checked. So we recommend that they have a DEXA scan done just to see what their baseline is. And then that should ideally be repeated every two years just to make sure that they're getting the right hormones with their HRT. Right. And that treatment then, will that remain the same as they get older or would it change as they approach the, the standard age of menopause? So, what would happen then? It remains the same. The idea is that you stay on hormone replacement therapy until you hit the average age of the menopause. So in the UK, that's 51. The amount of hormone replacement therapy you need might change. So our youngest patients with premature ovarian insufficiency are on relatively high doses of estrogen just because that's what their bodies expect and that's what you want to have you know a healthy happy libido not to have joint aches to feel your best self and sometimes yes. women find that actually they reduce their dose a little bit as they head towards average menopause age but the doses that our patients are on, you know, quite a bit higher than you'd expect. Mm, mm, I see. And you talked earlier about sort of the importance of, of breaking that news through in a sensitive way, perhaps with the, the family doctor and so on. Do, do you think that your own personal experience changes the way you work with women who, who have this condition? Totally. So I, I was very, very lucky. I have an absolute dream of a GP. She is wonderful and held my hand patiently throughout my fertility treatment, which is a big thing to go through for absolutely anyone. I must admit, I found it particularly difficult doing IVF whilst working as an obstetrician and gynecologist. You know, I found out that my second IVF cycle had failed in the middle of doing a cesarean section when my period arrived. And it's so, oh. I don't know, it, it's its so strange spending your time managing other women's pregnancies when you are slowly coming to terms with the fact that you won't be a parent yourself. So I am so, so, so thankful for my doctor just being absolutely brilliant and really looking after my mental health. A lot of the time, if you've got a super GP Although the NICE guideline says that you know, young, younger women with ovarian insufficiency should see a specialist, um, actually, quite a lot of women are managed happily by good GPs. If a GP doesn't really feel ready to do that, they go and see a hospital specialist. And I have worked with women who have premature ovarian insufficiency in my hospital practice. I think it has definitely, definitely changed how I approach all of my menopausal patients. I have a lot more sympathy for what the symptoms actually feel like for menopausal women. You know, I had no idea how ratty not sleeping could make you. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, yeah. You know, I, I am lucky. I'm someone who's always been blessed with a real ability to sleep. And I, I flip flops between night shifts and day shifts as a junior doctor and just didn't really even think about it. And then suddenly, shortly before I went on HRT, I was waking up at three in the morning and just could not go back to sleep, even though I was beyond exhausted. Mm. And the joint aches, I mean, my goodness, you spend your whole time moving as a junior hospital doctor, you don't really sit down very much. And yet I was just creaking my way up and down the stairs in the hospital, just sort of thinking, yeah, this, this isn't quite right. And once I started the HRT, it was so much better. I do find that my patients, my younger patients who are going through the menopause, I I get it. I, I suppose that that's the difference. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think there's nothing like actually having that particular experience, whatever it might no. be, because you can't really truly understand anything unless it's happened to you. you so I think you, you talked very much about the the, the shock of, of a diagnosis yeah. like this. And I I love that on the, the Daisy Network website, and we'll come on to talk about that shortly, that you talk about living a, a positively child-free life. That That can't have been an easy transition to make, given that you had made the positive decision to start a family. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, what specific steps have you taken to, to help you do that? Goodness. Um, it, I mean, I think the most important thing there is the blessing of time and just you know, working through this. And it's been something that both my husband and I have had to come to terms with and to work out within our relationship. I think these things can be incredibly difficult for men. And yet, I don't think men talk about this very well, um, or very much. I suppose what happened was that I had a lot of counselling organised by my excellent GP, And I read the fantastic book, Living the Life Unexpected by Jodie Day. Uh, She's set up this incredible organisation called Gateway Women, which, you know, organises and meetups and offers advice and help for women who are child free, whether through infertility or through circumstance. And I suppose I had to just take a deep breath and say, well, this is life now, what can we do to make it brilliant? And so I say that we live a positively child-free life. Our life is actually full of children. We have wonderful nieces, nephews, godchildren, who we spend time with and enjoy all the lovely things about parenting, but can opt out of the trickier things if we want to. Um, We have space in our relationship to do our own thing and to do things together. So our our friends often joke about the extracurricular activity schedule that my husband and I have, which is ridiculous. It's a bit like being at school sometimes, but there is space in our lives to both play musical instruments. My husband's a very keen squash player. I do outdoor swimming. It's wonderful. Um, There is a freedom that we have in terms of, I suppose, not always having to be meticulous planners, which by nature we both are, but there is room for spontaneity if we want it and freedom from having to worry quite so much about things like finances. 
or having to be back to pick up children from daycare and things like that. Yes, yes. Um, children are expensive and very time consuming. Children are expensive and time consuming. I, I mean, yeah. I do occasionally have worries that we will be the lonely old people in the old people's home. But having children is obviously no guarantee of, you know, having a very happy visited old age. And I think in some ways it's made us just more aware now that we need to, you know, just keep an eye on stuff like that. So I am hoping mm. that our wonderful godchildren take up the slack um, and come and visit Absolutely. Us. Yeah. yeah. The investment you're making now in them hopefully will will reap benefits. Exactly. There are one or two in particular I've got my eye on for being particularly Marvellous, yes. I'm quite the same with my nieces and nephews, I have to tell you. Brilliant. But equally... If, you know, they they choose not to, that's okay. We will work our way around that. And, mm. yeah, we. I wish I could tell myself five years ago just how happy and positive and full our lives would be right now because I wouldn't have believed it. And mm. it's it's been wonderful, really positive. Yeah, well, I, I I do admire that. I think it's it, it's obviously been quite a journey that you've been on to, to get to that place. And, and I, I would endorse that. I don't have children myself. And I think that that has allowed me to make choices and do things in life that I wouldn't yes. have done, either because those they're risks you don't take when you have a family and you have to think about that side of things or because you have more freedom quite simply so I think I think it's incredible that that you're able to to achieve that but one thing that that strikes me I think is that you know society can be unwittingly quite insensitive about couples who don't have children and you know what do you say to people who who have no qualms about asking you when you're going to start a family. Yes. So this really irritates me because th- there's this sort of funny idea about how selfish it is to, you know, not have children and that my husband and I must spend all of our time, you know, indulging ourselves. And actually, I, I resent that idea slightly. We both have lives mm. where we we try to give back and be helpful members of society. I get, well, I suppose it gets assumed quite often that I I do have children. I work in a very female-dominated environment. Obstetrics and gynaecology is full of women who are mothers. And I'll often get sort of asked, oh, so I assume you have children, you know, how old are they? And I'm quite direct about this. I will, you know, I'll say no. And then there'll quite often be a sort of follow up. Oh, well, I'm sure it will happen soon then. And then I start thinking, oh, God, you know, am I looking every single minute of my 37 years old? Do I really look like I need to get on with it? But I will I will say, well, no, we don't have children because I am one of those unfortunate women who go through the menopause in their 30s. It's funny, I'm now thinking about why I say unfortunate, and I genuinely think that's me thinking medically unfortunate, because, Mm. you know, it is, it's not just a diagnosis about having children, it it has medical consequences. And the thing is, once you tell people that you have gone through the menopause very early, they usually are absolutely gobsmacked, and quite often, they'll look very awkward and embarrassed about it. You know, if they've asked in a very nice way, I will, you know, tell them, you know, please don't be sorry. It's something we've worked through and we're very, very happy. But every now and again, if someone's asked in a not particularly nice way, I will just let that news linger there like a bad fart. And they always look very <laughs> embarrassed. 
And I hope that will stop them asking women about their uteruses when they have no business asking about them. It's a very personal decision. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I I think I couldn't agree more. And I think there is also one of the things that that irritates me immensely is this assumption that your time is somehow less important because you don't have children. Oh, completely. So I'm incredibly lucky with my consultant colleagues who I work with now. I work in a lovely department. Everyone Everyone knows my diagnosis. I'm actually a consultant at the department I was working in when I was going through fertility treatment five years ago. So they know the story and they know where I am. But I've previously worked in departments where it's just been assumed that because I don't have children, I won't mind not having any annual leave over the summer or it's perfectly okay for me to sort of do the worst shifts over Christmas or it doesn't necessarily matter if I leave on time or not. And Mm. it's very, very hard indeed not to seem like a really miserable, unhelpful colleague and at the same time preserve your own life and routine and space and not have people constantly just think you're lesser because of it. It's a really difficult balance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, what advice do you give to women in this situation when they when they speak to you about this? So I tell them, and shameless plug, but I tell them to come and join the Daisy Network. Oh, sorry, actually. Oh, that takes us very neatly to Daisy. It was going to be my next question. So far away, what is the Daisy Network? So the Daisy Network is a fantastic volunteer-run charity um, who helps women with premature ovarian insufficiency. So it is in its 25th year. It was set up in 1995 by some patients who were looked after by a wonderful um, menopause expert called Dr. Jerry Conway. It's volunteer run entirely. Our current chair is a wonderful woman called Amy Benny, who manages to fit in so much work for Daisy around her sort of everyday life and other full-time job. And We exist, well, to provide medical information for women going through premature ovarian insufficiency, but also to provide networking and peer-led support. So a lot of our activity actually happens through our Facebook site, which is sort of open to members, our Facebook group even. And people just post very frank questions and problems about their lives with premature menopause. Um, what sort of work do you do then so for them? So I act as a advice doctor for the Daisy Network and what I do is a couple of times a month I sit down with another Daisy Network doctor volunteer. There's, there's a handful of us and we all have menopause experience and we answer people's questions on an online live chat. Now, everything that we talk to about the menopause with our Daisy Network members, we make sure that they are using in conjunction with their own treating specialist. But people will often just use us to double check little things that they weren't quite sure about in their last consultation, or ask for suggestions about different HRT preparations. And I think it's a really, really useful service just so that people can, you know, get a little bit more information and help about things that they probably didn't think about when they were sitting opposite their specialists in a consulting room. So 
I'm really proud of the work we do and very proud of the work our members do to raise funds for the charity. And I'm so glad that I found it. I think, I mean, that sounds like an incredible service because it's very challenging when you are sitting in front of your consultant and you've got a million things running through your head and you can't remember everything they've said to you and you meant to take notes but then you sometimes feel like a rabbit in headlights there's all those things I I think no matter how intelligent or higher powered or or confident people are you can often become a rabbit in headlights yes. the minute you get in a medical situation. Absolutely. And I think it's great that they've got that extra support where they can just come back and sense check a little bit yeah. um, with, with you or one of your colleagues at DAISY. I think that's exactly it. In fact, we have a series of fact, fact sheets on our website. And one of those is, you know, what what you need to know when you're newly diagnosed and questions to ask your specialist, because it's it's quite a lot of science. You have to do quite a lot of homework with this diagnosis. And people, you know, not don't just want to know about their fertility. They want to know about their medication, about what's going to happen for the rest of their life, whether their sisters or cousins are at risk of the same thing. And it's really helpful just to have some little prompts to take with you. What about women who have reached standard age of menopause, but who came through premature ovarian insufficiency earlier? Could they come to you if they sort of still had questions or were looking back and and worrying about things? Do you have some members who are of regular, I mean, again, I'm not quite sure how one says this, but of standard. No, I'm using standard. standard. I'm not sure how to put it. Standard or average menopause age. And actually, I think not only do we sometimes answer their queries, but they are a really useful part of the community. So something that happens very frequently on our members Facebook group is that someone will post in a real degree of distress saying, you know what, I've just found out my sister is pregnant. I don't know what to do with myself. Or God forbid, I've been invited to a baby shower. I mean, if I were in charge of the world, baby showers would be banned. But these members who've been through the whole the whole thing an early diagnosis taking their HRT watching their peers have families and then get to an age where actually their friends are now talking about the menopause are invaluable to provide support for the community so so it's really lovely when they do get involved Mm, that's great so how can people find, well, you if they want to consult directly with you and the DAISY Network if they want to get some more rounded support? How can they find Excellent. you? Excellent. So I'm going to give you the DAISY Network details for the show notes, but we are there. And there. so membership is currently £20 a year, which I think is pretty reasonable value. But if yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? But if anyone is struggling to afford that, and we recognise that there are some people that will be, they are always very, very welcome just to drop a little note to info at daisynetwork.org.uk. And we do waive that fee in some circumstances. So it's, you know, very much open to everyone. Oh, that's great that it's so inclusive. And I'll be sure to put that that email address along with the URL for the website Please in the show do. notes. So you can contact me through the Daisy Network website. I have a Daisy Network email account. 
I must admit that I'm actually not on Instagram. I'm far too busy managing my puppy's Instagram account to have one of my own. Um, <laughs> but I am on Twitter. I'm at VeryToolBecca. So please pop that in your show note details as well. And I'm very happy to be contacted there. Absolutely. And I didn't know that. So I'll be following you straight oh, away. Excellent. Oh, I can't believe we're we're coming to the end of this already. There's been so much useful information here. So thank you very much. But before we wrap up, from all the things you've learned and all the clinical expertise that you have, but also your own personal experience, what would your top two tips be for, for women who are diagnosed with premature ovarian insufficiency? So... The first one is take your HRT. I, I cannot say this enough. So many women, and I'll include myself in this, who've had a premature ovarian insufficiency diagnosis, do not realise that they have proper symptoms until they get on the right HRT dose and suddenly feel like a new woman. It's safe and it really, really could change your life. So please take it. And yeah. And it's very important, I think, to to flag that up because, of course, as a nutritionist, yes. obviously, I'm all about diet mm-hmm. and lifestyle and making sure that you're eating the right Absolutely. thing. But there are there are times in life where diet just can't do no. it. <laughs> and premature ovarian insufficiency is definitely one of those. So it's it's not it, it, it's a bit of a non-negotiable, it's, really, isn't it? The, the HRT. Unfortunately, it, it really, really is. And there is so much that you can then do as an extra when it comes to diet and lifestyle to make yourself feel even better but start with the basics and get those hormones back and your body will thank you for it and the other thing is to not be afraid of being pushy so if you do think that this is you and you are going through the menopause earlier than expected go and see your GP and have a good talk about it be a bit firm and if you need to take a printout of those nice guidelines i'll make sure that those are included with the show notes as well oh yeah. great they're going to be very full show they, notes. they are aren't they? <laughs> but, but, but have a read of them they are really you know not all medical jargon they're surprisingly accessible and take those along to show your gp because actually you know your gp is an expert in so many things, but may well never have met anyone going through the menopause quite as young as you are. So sometimes they need a bit of a prompt. It's really not a problem. Fantastic. That's really great advice. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been really interesting and and incredibly useful to talk to you. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for some really, really thought-provoking questions. It's been a pleasure. What an inspiring woman. I'm in awe of how Rebecca has worked so hard on processing what must have been incredibly distressing news and converting it into such positivity for herself, as well as proactively helping other women. I hope you found this episode helpful. Do please reach out to Rebecca and the Daisy Network, if you haven't already, to make sure you get the support you need. I've put all the relevant links in the show notes on the podcast page of my website, well-well-well. Next month, it's all about aging well, because what you do now lays down the foundations for your health in your 60s, 70s and beyond. So I'm speaking to Susan Saunders, author of The Age Well Project, about her new book, The Age Well Plan. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen on. And make sure you tell all your friends. 
It makes a huge difference to the visibility of the podcast and really helps to spread the word because every woman deserves to have a happy menopause. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.